0: is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit Well, Good morning once again and welcome once again to Trinity Grace. We are so glad that you're here, especially if you're a guest with us today. If you've got a copy of God's Word, you'll want to turn it to Philippians chapter 4. Feel free to pull out your iPhone and pull it up there as well. We're going to be calling an audible from the passage that's printed in your bulletin this morning. Will Nettleton, who's the RUF campus minister at Trinity University, was actually scheduled to preach for us this morning from 2 Samuel. But yesterday I got a text from him in the afternoon telling me that his wife, who's 39 weeks pregnant, was having a baby. And he was pretty sure that he wouldn't make it this morning. To which I replied, We asked you to preach, not your wife. What's the problem? Well, Will didn't think that was funny, and he refused to be here, actually. And so I'm glad he did, because they welcomed a little girl last night around 6 in the evening named Story Grace in Edleton, and uh, we are happy for him and Mary. But because Will can't be with us this morning, I chose a passage from Paul's letter to the Philippians to take a look at as kind of a standalone sermon this morning. And many of you who are familiar with the book of Philippians will know that it's a letter that's characterized by joy. In fact, Paul uses the word joy at least 16 times in this short letter. And we see this morning that as Paul closes his letter, he touches once again on this aspect of joy. And if you step back and think about the context in which Paul writes this letter, joy would actually be the last word that comes to your mind. Remember, Paul is writing from a Roman prison cell. He's isolated from community. He's unsure about his future. He's enduring horrible conditions. Yet in the midst of all of this uncertainty and discomfort, he writes a letter characterized by joy. Now, how is this possible? What would motivate such a counterintuitive perspective on life? Well, if we knew someone like this in San Antonio, someone like Paul, I think that me and you would want to listen to that person We'd want to learn from them. We'd want to know their secret. Paul lets us in on that secret this morning. And so let's listen to him and see what we might learn. You follow along as I read from Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. I wonder how many of you use Twitter. There's so many social media platforms out there today, it's hard to decide which one to focus on. You've got Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest. The list goes on and on, and it can get overwhelming. Personally, when I was on social media, before I became a conscientious objector, I liked Twitter. There you can get your social media fix in 280 characters or less. And I used to follow lots of different kinds of people on Twitter, politicians, athletes, comedians. And on Twitter, it's normal to follow individuals, people, but you can also follow what I'd call topical tweets, tweets that are geared toward a particular topic. Examples would be SEC football sayings or lessons learned in an elevator. Well, one of these uh, uh, topical Twitter handles I followed was entitled Holiday Complaints. I don't know if it's it's out there anymore, but it's a Twitter page dedicated to recording the actual complaints from people who are on vacation. Now, this is a bit ironic if you think about it, because people are supposed to be enjoying their fake vacation. It's supposed to be a relaxed time where you're kind of letting things slide. But what you see from this Twitter page is that even when people are on vacation, they find reasons to complain. Here are five of my favorite complaints from this Twitter feed. One person said, the animals at the zoo looked very sad and it made our children cry. Can't they train them to smile? Another person said, the street signs weren't in English. I don't understand how anyone can get around. Another said, we had to cut our trip to Yellowstone short because we were informed that they don't cage the animals at night for our protection. Another wife wrote, my husband drank the local beer and ended up violently drunk. They must put something in the alcohol here. And another person wrote, the local women were too beautiful. It made me feel bad about myself. A little bit sad. But complaining on vacation." Does it get any worse than that? I mean, it's funny for sure, but the discontent that these people express over Twitter isn't really that foreign to any of us, I don't think. We all feel a fair amount of dissatisfaction in our lives. And I would even imagine that many, if not most of us, go through a normal day with more complaining than we do gratitude. In fact, you could accurately describe our culture and most of our lives with the the word discontent. Discontent. We're generally discontent with our jobs, with our families, with our health, with our church, with our friends, and the list goes on. Our lives are described well by a comedian I heard a few years back commenting on the technological advances we enjoy in life when he said this, everything's amazing right now and nobody's happy. Everything's amazing and nobody's happy. Contentedness is so elusive for you and me. It's what Paul's talking about in our passage this morning, contentment. And it's important as we begin to define our terms. What does Paul mean when he uses the word contentment in our passage? Well, another word for the term content in verse 11 would be satisfied. Satisfied. In our passage this morning, Paul is making the astonishing claim that circumstances do not drive his contentedness or his satisfaction. In fact, he says in verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of placing plenty in hunger, abundance and need. In other words, no matter the circumstances, Paul is content. And this is amazing when you think about the fact that we live in a culture that tries to convince us of the complete opposite of what Paul's teaching us here. We live in a culture that tells us that our satisfaction is directly tied to our present circumstances. And because of this, because this is our experience, our our experience with contentment is, is really shaky at best. Most of us have no experience with what Paul is talking about in this passage. We tend to base our contentment on what's currently happening in our lives. For most of us, contentment always feels like it's just out of reach. Contentment is one promotion or one new car or one good vacation away. John Ortberg, in his book, Love Beyond Reason, puts his finger on our culture's challenge with contentment. He says this, All day long, we're bombarded with messages that seek to persuade us of two things. One, that we are or ought to be discontented. And two, that contentment is only one step away. Use me, buy me, eat me, wear me, try me, drive me, put me in your hair. The things you can buy for hair contentment alone are staggering. You can wash it, condition it, mousse it, dye it, curl it, straighten it, wax it if it's growing where it shouldn't, and rogain it if it's not growing where it should. People are healthier, cleaner, richer, and better informed than ever We live longer, eat better, dress warmer, work less, and play more than ever in the history of the human race. But are we happier? Or are we just cleaner, healthier, better coiffed discontents? What is it that drives our discontentment? Well, there are many things we could talk about, but I want to highlight just a few. First, we're discontent because we feel like we never have enough. I mean, even in a room full of people who can have almost anything they want, it never feels like it's enough. How big is big enough? How new is new enough? How much would you need to feel satisfied this morning? Some of you have probably heard the story of John Rockefeller, an Ohio native who lived in the early 20th century. He was the first ever American billionaire, and at one point, the world's richest man. And a reporter one day asked him, how much money is enough? To which Rockefeller replied, many of you know the response, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. That's the mentality that we often live with. We never quite have enough. And once we get what we want, there's always a little bit more out there for us to obtain. And this mentality actually keeps us from real contentment. The other thing that drives our discontent is that nothing really lasts. I mean, I can remember the feeling of each and every new iPhone that I've ever purchased. And man, it is a thrill. Thrill. Spend days tracking the package to my door. I open the phone with lots of excitement. I buy extra gadgets to protect this device. I convince myself that this new phone, this new technology is going to change my life. And then a few weeks later, the kids are throwing it around the living room, playing games on it. Because nothing really lasts. How long until the new phone or the new car or the new house runs its course? These things seem to slip right through our fingers. They bring satisfaction and contentment for a little while, but the luster always eventually wears off. Much quicker than we would like more often than not. Everything we have that brings contentment is perishable. It can be taken away. And because of our culture and because of our own hearts... You and I are fighting an uphill battle when it comes to experiencing true contentment. We really functionally believe that satisfaction can be experienced if we earn enough or get on the right exercise program or live in the right neighborhood. And all the while, we wonder why we're so unsatisfied, why we're so discontent. Our passage this morning touches on our desire for contentment and reminds us that it's not about us having a lot. It's not even about us simplifying and having a little. Satisfaction is not contingent on our abundance or on our poverty. Paul reminds us that true satisfaction is found in Jesus. And at the risk of sounding too simplistic this morning, we see that the secret to Paul's contentment is Christ. As we pick up the passage, we know that the Philippians had just sent a substantial financial gift through their messenger Epaphroditus in order to support Paul and his ministry in a Roman prison. And this is what Paul is referencing in verse 10. He wants to express thankfulness for the gift and for the Philippians' concern. But Paul doesn't want the Philippians to think that he's discontent that he's unsatisfied with his present circumstances. So he encourages them by talking about his contentment no matter the situation. And the claim that Paul makes in verse 11 is astonishing if you think about it. He tells the Philippians that he has learned in whatever situation he is to be content. Now this would have been encouraging for the Philippians to hear because it's clear from the context that the Philippians were anxious over their lives, they were anxious over their circumstances, they likely had many needs and concerns. In fact, Paul has to remind them in verses 6 and 7 of this chapter, not to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, In the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus." The Philippians, just like us, needed to hear that contentment is possible for them no matter their circumstances. And so Paul uses his own life as an example. We see that Paul has a settledness about him, rooted deep in his heart. This settledness is there when Paul's experiencing good things in life, and it's also there when he's experiencing difficulties in life. And Paul has a certain amount of credibility, you would say, Because he's a person who knows what it means to experience difficult circumstances. He's worth listening to when he talks about contentment. Listen to how he describes a few of the difficulties he's experienced in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is Paul writing. I know I sound like a madman, but I've served Christ far more than anyone else. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities and the deserts and on the seas. And I've faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. Paul is a man who suffered hardship and faced dangers that most people in that day and today can't even begin to imagine. And in the midst of all that life throws at him, Paul claims to be content. Now, how is that possible? What's the secret to Paul's contentment? We see the secret in verse 13 when he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul can experience contentment despite his circumstances because his contentment is not rooted in his circumstances. Instead, his contentment is rooted in his union with Christ. In his union with Christ, Paul is saying that because Jesus is king, because he's the controlling reality of my life, I can experience contentment. And this is hard for us because we often live with the very opposite kind of mindset. More often than not, our contentment is directly rooted in our circumstances. If good things happen, I'm content. When things go wrong, I grow more and more discontent. We find settledness only when things work out, and we're deeply unsettled when things don't go like we'd want. And the things that have the ability to make us more content or less content could legitimately be called our functional gods the things that you and I look to for ultimate satisfaction, the things that we look to for a settled heart and a settled soul. And there's no end to what we'll look for in order to find satisfaction. A great diagnostic question for us this morning, and we've used it here before, is what is it if you could have today would bring satisfaction to your life? Or we could do a fill-in-the-blank diagnostic. If I could just have blank, then I would be happy. If I could just have blank, then I would be happy. How would you feel? It, fill in that blank? If I could just have a nicer home, a thinner body, a better marriage, a little more approval. If I could just have a clean bill of health, then I'd be happy. We fill in the blank with lots of different things. And normally they're really good things, but they eventually always let us down. But Paul in this passage says that Jesus ultimately doesn't. Paul's placing his full weight on Jesus. And he's inviting you and me to do the same. Paul knows that Jesus is the only thing in this life that will never fail, that will never let him down. Jesus is the only thing in his life that's sturdy and strong enough to bear the weight of his soul and to bring true contentment to his heart. Paul's inviting us to know this contentment by way of example this morning. So the question becomes, how do we begin to work this kind of contentment into our own lives? Is there a book out there that you can read that will make you more content? Is there a special prayer you can pray? Is there a seminar you can attend to be more content? Well, unfortunately, that's not how it works. The first thing we need to see from our passage is that contentment is something that Paul had to learn It wasn't something that happened instantaneously. In fact, the word learned in verses 11 and 12 is actually a word that's used for disciples being initiated into a course of study. Paul was on a journey of learning contentment. It's important to understand that we're all in the middle of a process of growing and developing in contentment. And God is committed to completing the good work that he's begun in us. And this gives us the ability to have patience with ourselves and others as we're initiated into a lifelong course of study on contentment. And as we begin to learn contentment in our lives, one way we can move in the right direction is by cultivating gratitude. Cultivating gratitude. And you and I can begin to cultivate gratitude as we understand that all we have in this life is a gift. It's all a gift. And this is the story that the Bible tells. The Bible tells us a story that we are dependent creatures and any good that we have both physically and spiritually in this world is a complete gift from God. We don't like to believe it, but it's true. But listening to this story, it can be hard because we live in a world of competing narratives. And these competing stories are clamoring for our attention to live according to their storylines. But in order to cultivate gratitude, we've got to begin living according to the grand narrative that scripture tells instead of the narratives that we hear all around us every day. The narrative we hear every day, the story we've convinced ourselves of is this. If we work hard enough, if we do the right things, if we keep from being a bad person, then we deserve happiness. We deserve prosperity. We deserve ease and comfort. We deserve contentment. This is the air we breathe and it can be detrimental when it comes to the contentment that God wants us to experience in life because according to this story, contentment is based on your circumstances. It's based on who you are and what you've done. If you're not content, well, guess what? That's your fault. You need to do better. If you're not content, you need to accumulate more. If you're not content, it's on you. And this story keeps us from ever experiencing anything as a gift. And as we look at this narrative that we hear every day, we need to place it against the narrative that we see in Scripture and decide which narrative is going to drive our lives. We see that Paul is living according to God's story. He's a participant in the divine narrative. And this divine narrative of Scripture reminds us that we deserve nothing. It reminds us that all that we have is a gift from God's good hand. In fact, the narrative of Scripture comes to you and tells you that you actually deserve God's displeasure. You actually deserve misery and death. You deserve to be discontent. But what we find in God's story is that He doesn't give us what we deserve. Instead, He gives us the exact opposite. He gives us grace. He gives us gift. And as we begin to read our lives in this story, we're able to cultivate gratitude no matter the circumstances that we find ourselves in. We begin to realize that all we have is a gift from God's hand. And when we're constantly receiving gifts that we don't deserve, guess what? Gratitude's the only response. Every day, you and I are in a battle of stories. And we have to look at the story of our culture that it's telling us and remind ourselves daily as we look at it that that is not our story. It's not our story. You and I are in a story characterized by grace. And as we understand and believe that, we'll have the ability to live with deep gratitude. This is really what Paul comes back to again and again throughout his life. Paul was content because he lived according to God's story. He was a man who knew he deserved nothing except for God's displeasure and judgment. But what he had received was grace. What he had received was Jesus, a gift that he did not deserve. And truth be told, it's what God offers each one of us this morning. Paul locates his contentment in the greatest gift he has ever received. And he's inviting us to do the same thing this morning. Paul is inviting us to base our contentment on the only one who lived, died, and was raised for us. And the one who has entered into our story and taken on our brokenness. Jesus is the great gift that we've received but did not deserve. Paul's inviting us to make Jesus the central reality of our lives. He's the one who will always satisfy our heart's deepest longings. Jesus is the one strong enough to bear the weight of our soul. He is the one who is never changing and always enough. And Paul wants you to know this morning that Jesus is the secret to true contentment. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that you are always there, that you never change. That you want what is best for us and that you have gone to great lengths to show us just that. Lord, we pray this morning that we would locate our contentment in you and in you alone, that despite circumstances, that despite failures and shame and guilt in our lives, that we would find great joy and contentment because we are united to you through faith. We pray that you would press that deeper into our hearts now, this morning and this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.